Um, I think it remains to be seen, you know, probably 100 or so days from now once everyone's in place where things are going to get going. But there definitely will be some, you know, some changes in all the agencies that administer the labor and employment laws on a national level, as well as the trickle-down effect, which we can talk about, you know, later on in terms of what that means for, you know, local, local government agencies. The right-to-work issue is a, is a huge issue, and it's going to affect labor's pocketbooks. And what labor is going to have to do is learn to organize, not learn to organize internally. And the unions that learn to do that will be effective. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrogi, coming to you from outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. Uh, I also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Clio and Latera. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And Latera. Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure the protection of your vital information. You can learn more at www.latera.com. Well, we're going to be talking labor law today. The... Uh National Labor Relations Act was passed by Congress in 1935, the Taft-Hartley Act, written in 1947. These are some of the key laws governing labor relations in the United States today. Uh, Many other labor laws governing workforce and employers have really changed little. Well, the working world has changed quite dramatically over those years. So are U.S. labor laws due for a major overhaul? And also in recent months, President Trump has nominated Alexander Acosta to fill the Secretary of Labor spot after his first pick, Andrew Pudzer, withdrew his nomination. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll take a look at U.S. federal labor laws, reform, current legislation, and the impact a new Secretary of Labor under a Trump presidency will have on the workforce and employers. To do that, today we've got a great lineup for you. Our first guest is attorney Howard Wexler. He's an associate in the Labor and Employment Group in Safarth Shah's New York office. His practice includes the representation of management in employment litigation matters before state and federal courts at trial and appellate levels, as well as federal and state agencies, including the National Labor Relations Board, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Department of Labor, New York State Division of Human Rights, and New Jersey Division on Civil Rights. In his role, Mr. Wexler has extensive experience defending both single and multi-plaintiff discrimination harassment cases, class and collective actions, as well as lawsuits initiated by the EEOC. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thank you. Great to be here. Also joining us today is Kate Bronfenbrenner. 
Kate is the Director of Labor Education Research and a Senior Lecturer at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations, where she does teaching and research on union and employer strategies and organizing and bargaining in the global economy. Kate has also done extensive research on the impact of trade policy on employment wages and unionization. Prior to joining the Cornell faculty in 1993, Kate was an assistant professor in labor studies at Penn State University and worked for many years as an organizer and union representative with the United Woodcutters Association in Mississippi and with SEIU in Boston, as well as uh, was a welfare rights organizer in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kate. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. One of the things that struck me in preparing for this show and and thinking about this show is uh, how uh, union membership has changed since the 30s and the 40s when these major labor laws were written. When uh, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, something 25% of the workforce was unionized then. Now, according to uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's uh, about 10.7%, or last year it was, and that's down a little bit from 2015. So not only you know has, has the number of unionized employees changed dramatically, but the workplace has changed dramatically. And uh, so it leads me to, to ask the sort of the, the fundamental question, I think. And Kate, I just wanted to kind of start the discussion with you as to, as to whether our labor laws are outmoded and need rethinking. Our labor laws have never been enforced or interpreted in a way that you can ever measure whether we know for sure that they do need changing. We have a a labor law that every presidential administration gets interpreted a different way, um, depending on who's president. And we have a labor law that has had certain groups that have never been covered under it that during times in our history have been the primary job for huge numbers of workers. So, for example, in 1950, 80% of black women in America were domestic workers. And yet, domestic workers were not covered under the National Labor Relations Act. A similar number of Latino workers were agricultural workers, and a very large number of black and white workers at that time were also agricultural workers, and they were excluded under the Act. Not that the National Labor Relations Act couldn't cover those workers, but they'd been excluded because of the power of agribusiness and because, frankly, congressmen at that time, they were all men, couldn't imagine not having domestic workers, you know, couldn't imagine having their domestic workers be organized. So from the beginning, we have had a problem that the law, the law could be much more than it was. So we haven't seen it fulfill what it could be. And it also has never had the punitive powers to enforce itself to the fullest. So without punitive damage, we don't know what the law could be if it actually was enforced to the fullest. So before we even talk about what we could change it, we also ought to see what the law would be like that actually was enforced to do what it says it could do. 
Howie, we've seen uh, President Trump roll out some significant changes as he start his presidency. What kind of changes are we expecting to see in the labor industry? Sure. Um, you know, I think as the president now gets his cabinet and his heads of uh, the various departments covering the labor and employment world in place, I think we're starting to see some um, some indication of where th- things are going. Um, first, he, he has put new chairs for the NLRB and the EOC, uh, Phil Miscamara, who's going to be the new chair of the National Labor Relations Board. You know, he's dissented in some recent Obama board decisions, including the uh, you know quote unquote quickie election rules, which uh, shorten the time period from when a petition is filed by employees to when the vote happens. Uh, as recently as, as last week, in a dissent, now Chairman Miscamara, who's still in the minority uh, in terms of Republican Democrat split until the board is up its, to its full five members, you know, described the current system as one with you know has a preoccupation with speed rather than the actual substance and the you know, the vote itself and one that we wouldn't tolerate for president and or for a high school election, let alone to determine whether or not employees are going to be represented by a union. So, you know, I definitely think there will be some changes at the NLRB with Chairman Miscamara um, coming out with, you know, his agenda. Same thing with the EEOC, where uh, Vicki Lipnick is now going to be the head of the EEOC. Um, over the past few years, the EEOC has taken some positions that, you know, some of the employer community have viewed uh, straying from what the true meaning or the, the words in Title Seven of the anti-discrimination laws are. Um, and, and she's come out uh, in her first press release after being appointed saying, you know, she's all for the uh, Trump's administration claim of and the number one importance being jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, and it's going to try to get out there and, and try to help employers and focus more on the education aspect than on necessarily the number of lawsuits filed. And then to the Department of Labor, where now uh, Mr. Acosta will be, you know, the presumptive choice to head the Department of Labor after uh, Mr. Pudzer dropped out, um, given, you know, his issues that came about. Mr. Acosta was formerly on the National Labor Relations Board, and it's, you know, not really clear in terms of the Department of Labor where his position will be on various issues. Um, But the main thing that a lot of employers are looking at uh, is the regulations that were going to increase the salary threshold for whether someone could be deemed an exempt employee or not. Uh, That was something that the Department of Labor went through the regulatory process and was rolled out and then was enjoined back in November. And since that time period, uh, the Department of Labor has basically asked for more time from the court to figure out what it's going to do with the turnover now at the Department of Labor. So um, I think it remains to be seen, you know, probably 100 or so days from now, once everyone's in place, where things are going to get going. But there definitely will be some, you know, some changes in all the agencies that administer the labor and employment laws on a national level, as well as the trickle-down effect, which we could talk about, you know, later on in terms of what that means for, you know, local, local government agencies. Yeah, Howard, if I could just ask, I want to get into more of these, the details about some of these issues that you've just raised, but also curious, the same question that I had asked Kate earlier, what's your perspective on the age, I guess, of of these sort of laws governing labor relations, at least in, in the United States, and whether there needs to be any kind of a revisiting of the structure overall, the legal structure around the NLRB and uh, around uh, governing labor relations, labor management relations. Yeah, yeah, I think to, you know an example of that is uh, with respect to the disability laws. By example, um, you know whether someone's entitled to an accommodation, it boils down to whether they can fulfill the essential functions of their job. If you ask an employer twenty years ago 
maybe even 15 years ago or 10, is showing up for work an essential function of your position. Um, and I think both in plaintiff side, employee side, lawyers, as well as management lawyers would, would generally agree. Now, not so much given the prevalence of telecommuting, people working from home like many of us do. So I, I think there's definitely a disconnect between when these laws were, were written and kind of what the world is like now especially on the, the wage and hour front, as well as other areas. And the fact that, you know, whether you refer to it the, as the gig economy or the, you know, Uberization of certain jobs, there's definitely, you know, more of a prevalence for people wanting to control their own schedules and, you know, more independent contractor opportunities available where they weren't in the past, given the, you know, the modern workplace. So um, I definitely think there's some, you know, round peg, square hole kind of situations in various laws that are governed. But I, I, so I think there is some room for there to be revisions, you know, given the, the modern workplace. Of course, a lot of that could be addressed through the interpretations of the administrative agencies that enforce those laws as well, sure. right? I mean, through the NLRB's decisions or the EEOC's uh, decisions on these matters. Yeah, I mean, exactly. A lot of it is in that respect. Um, you know, one, one thing that's you know, now being challenged, the, the Second Circuit, which is the appellate court, you know, governing many in terms of including New York, is whether Title VII protects transgendered individuals. You know, the text of Title VII doesn't include transgendered individuals, but now there's, you know, and, and various courts around the country are, are, are grappling with that as there's been kind of a standstill in terms of the federal government laws being amended. So, you know, courts have been asked to do more because of, you know, certain gridlock in Congress. And, you know, that's one of the many examples of that. So then, you know, you can get into some issues with, you know, the courts having to do what the legislature, you know, hasn't been able to accomplish and whether or not that continues to go on, given the current congressional makeup, you know, remains to be seen. But I think, you know, to your point, these government agencies have been asked to do more and more in terms of their own administration because they haven't been able to look for Congress to, to change any of these laws in a, in a wholesale manner to reflect the, you know, the, the 21st century. That's what really what was behind the rulemaking for uh, what Howard calls the quickie elections, but actually was based on research that was done. And I did some of the research that showed that, in fact, 50% of serious unfair labor practices occurred before the petition was filed. So it wasn't about making elections happen faster. In fact, we've seen that the rule changes weren't to deal with that as much as to get to get rid of some of the barriers that were happening so that workers were not even able to get to the petition. And there are so many so many workers that don't even get to organize because of the extreme number of illegal actions taken by employers before the election's filed, um, before the petition is even filed. The campaigns don't even get off the ground. And the number of delays that happen before the election process even starts. And this was not about making elections happen faster between the petition and the election, but trying to get rid of all the delays that happen that interfere with workers even getting started in the campaign. You don't see a rapid change. I've done a study that to see how much has changed since the rule change were filed, and there hasn't been a dramatic increase. What you've seen is that you can't, the employers no longer can delay the election by just frivolous charges. That's the only change that's happened. 
You know, and, and you know, briefly with respect to you know that issue, uh, you know whether the are there employers that commit unfair labor practices? There, you know, there, there clearly are. You know, but it, for example, the, this case that was decided last week, this European Imports case that uh, Chairman Miscamara dissented on, between the time that the challenges were worked out and the time of the election, there were three days from when employees were told, "Okay, you're now able to vote," because of all the challenges that got resolved um, to but when the election the was. That's the exception. That's the exception. As I said, fifty percent of serious unfair labor practices happen before the petition is filed. I took five years of the population of elections, and I looked at the actual primary documents of unfair labor practice documents and looked through and found the actual date the unfair labor practice occurred. And they occurred, half of them occurred before the petition was filed. And these are the NLRB documents themselves. This isn't, this isn't a survey. This is the actual documents. And that's, you know, huge that they, they these happen. These are not trivial things. These are only the serious. This is only, you know, discharges, interrogation, threats, harassment, wage changes, surveillance. These are not minor things. What are we likely to, what should we expect to see happening with a uh, Republican-dominated uh, NLRB at what are the big issues that uh, are likely to be addressed or, or that uh, the, the Republicans would like to see, uh, you know, uh, modified in some way uh, through their control of the NLRB? Sure. I mean, I think picking up where we just discussed, the, the election rules um, are one where at least, you know, the now chairman has indicated, you know, having some issues with the obsession with the timing aspect of it. So that's one area where, you know, employers are, are hoping there might be some change on. You know, there's some other positions the board has taken recently. You know, most uh, the most publicized one is in the Browning-Ferris case, which is currently on appeal, um, regarding the joint employer standard in terms of whether or not two related entities are both deemed employer for purposes of collective bargaining. Congress held hearings on it, um, on the issue, and the Department of Labor has also has, has been involved in their own expansion, at least from the employer's perspective, expansion on that. Um, but that's an area where the board has taken a, a different approach that the employer community has, has struggled with to get to get its hands around. Um, and that's one that, that you know, it's probably it's the Browning-Ferris case itself that the board decided is currently on appeal. Um, but that's another one of the uh, the big ones from the past four to five years. You know, one that I think affects employers on a day-to-day basis as well is the uh, handbooks. There's been a host of decisions from the NLRB in validating certain provisions in, from employer handbooks on things such as, um, you know, as, as nuance to, you know, whether it's confidentiality policies, recording policies, ones, you know, having employees be cooperative or respectful for each other. The standard, again, this is one where Chairman Miscamara has dissented a fair amount over the past year, year and a half, um, not necessarily on whether the rule itself violates the act, but on the test in terms of whether or not the rule itself violates the NLRA, which is currently you know, viewed as whether the reasonable employee would reasonably construe the law as restricting their ability to engage in protected concerted activity, um, this Lutheran heritage line of cases. So I know that's one that you know most all employers have a handbook in one form or the other, and they've been struggling for the past few years, given the board you know really entering this arena, which they hadn't done so so much in the past. And there's no real bright line test in terms of whether or not 
uh, a rule would be law- deemed lawful by the you know, current board or not. Um, so I know that's another one that employers are really hoping to get some clarity on because you want to have handbooks in place so that employees can consult them to figure out what your policies are, your practices are. And I think in the current state, there's really, you know, as someone who advises employers on a daily basis, you know, there's some, some ones that are clearly violate the act, but there's a lot of gray. And I think the purpose of having handbooks is so that you don't have gray, so that everything's clear and laid out clearly. And I think given the current state of the law and the, these decisions from the board, it's hard for employers to do that. Um, and, you know, that, that's another one. There's, there's other decisions that I know uh, Kate can chime in on in terms of if they frequently go back and forth when there's a Republican-led board and a Democrat-led board, they, they switch back and forth. But those are a few of the ones that I think employers are looking carefully on to see what the board, once it's, again, up to its full five members under a Republican-led administration, is going to do. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, practice law. Learn more at clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Patera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Patera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams and with us today is Howard Wexler, an associate in the Labor and Employment Group in Safarth Shaw's New York office and Kate Brunfenbrenner. She's the Director of Labor Education Research and a Senior Lecturer at Cornell University School of Industrial Relations. We've been talking about the appointment of the new labor secretary. Kate, I'd like to follow up with you about President Trump's intention. It seems that there is a significant amount of effort in the new administration to deconstruct federal involvement in various areas of the law and return power to the states. Do you see that happening here in the new appointment of Acosta? Well, I think that Trump does want to do that. What's unclear is whether he can do that in terms of labor law. The 14th Amendment is pretty clear, and states have labor boards. Um, The court decisions have come down over the years very clearly that labor relations law is very clearly a private sector law belongs to the federal level, and they have not allowed states to make decisions on private sector employees when it comes to these decisions relating to organizing, other than your right to work. They have been allowed to pass laws about collective bargaining, but not organizing. So the other thing is that there's really a question of 
you know, how long Trump will be president since all of these kind of decisions will be challenged through the courts up to the Supreme Court. And we've seen that with all the major labor law decisions were challenged up to the Supreme Court. And when you had a one-term president, they were reversed very often and went back down. And it takes more than four years for them to go up to the court. What about that right to work issue? They, Howard mentioned, uh, I think earlier in his comments that there, you know, we might see sort of a trickle down effect towards the states in uh, setting labor policy anyway. And uh, I think, I think it's roughly half the states have have right to work laws now, uh, and other states are still considering it. The right to work issue is a is a huge issue, and it's going to affect labor's pocketbooks. And what labor is going to have to do is learn to organize not learn to organize internally. And the unions that learn to do that will be effective. And we've had public sector unions organizing successfully in the South for, you know, 100 years, and they've learned to do that. And you see those unions have been quite strong. What do you mean by that? Organize their members to support the union itself? You know, public sector unions in the South have never had collective bargaining rights you know, they were not only right to work, they didn't have collective bargaining rights, and they gained collective bargaining despite the fact that there weren't collective bargaining laws. You see unions like CWA organizing very effectively in Texas, the teachers organizing across the South. We have a very strong teachers union. You saw SEIU organizing in Atlanta, um, public sector workers in Atlanta, and other unions organizing in Atlanta. So Atlanta is actually a union city. I mean, and unions are very powerful in Atlanta. You have steelworkers organizing in Alabama, you know, Mobile being a a strong union town, so that you have had unions being able to organize in right-to-work states, despite the fact they're right-to-work states. We have to remember that it's not too long ago that we had textile workers organized by Act II across the South. We had furniture workers organized across the South who left not because of right to work, but because, you know, the tariffs and NAFTA. So it isn't that you can't organize with right to work. It's that you have to organize more effectively and strategically. In fact, the win rates under the NLRB have been higher in the South than they have been in the Midwest and the Northeast. It's just that the unions who win are unions who have a more effective strategy and have to work harder to stay organized. There are a lot of unions who don't know how to do that, and they're going to have to learn to do that or in right-to-work states, or they won't survive. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so we'd like to take this moment to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and their contact information. And Howie, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, thank you for the time. I, I appreciate the, the time, and it's been a, a great discussion. And I think, you know, 100 days from now, it'll be a Different discussion in terms of we'll have some more clarity, um, but to the extent uh, people are interested in discussing any of these issues, Howard Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R. Uh, my firm is Cypher Shaw LLP, so it could find me online or LinkedIn or Twitter. You know, I think it, it will be interesting time, and I think one thing we haven't touched upon is the Supreme Court. Obviously, there's a pending uh, individual, Judge Gorsuch, who's up to be on the bench, and there's you know a couple big decisions in the employment space that are going to be worth monitoring. The one involves class action waivers, that one 
one is now going to be heard in the fall term. Um, there's a circuit split on that issue, and that's that's a big hot button issue for employers, as well as you know whether or not the the case that Justice Scalia was heard oral argument but passed away before was decided, piggybacking this you know right to work discussion, the Friedrichs case about agency fees and you know public sector employers. So I think you know the Supreme Court and the the makeup of the court, if Judge Gorsuch gets confirmed, you know will go a long way in, in deciding some of these issues. As Professor Brockenbrenner said, a lot of these issues and almost all of them will end up down by the Supreme Court at some point, and, you know, whether and to what extent President Trump gets to put more than just one member on the on the court will we'll go a long way in seeing how these issues get resolved long-term. And Kate Bronfenbrenner, I can be reached at Cornell University, either at my email, klb23, cornell.edu, or by looking at the Cornell website and searching just for my name. I'm very easy to find, just if you know how to spell my name, which is B-R-O-N-F-E-N-B-R-E-N-N-E-R. I agree very much with Howard that a lot depends on the Supreme Court cases coming up and also just on what labor and what Congress decides to do, particularly both Democrats and Republicans in Congress, which way they decide to move and which way the public decides to move them. Yeah, there's a lot we weren't able to talk about today. The Supreme Court is a, a major one, as, as you say, Howard, and uh, we didn't really get much into the EEOC or the Department of Labor and uh, entities such as OSHA. So uh, maybe we'll have to revisit it, uh, as you say, in 100 days or so and see what starts to happen. But Really happy to have both of you. We've been talking with Howard Wexler, Associate in the Labor and Employment Group at Seifarth Shaw's New York office, and Kate Bronfenbrenner, Director of Labor Education Research and a senior lecturer at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Thank you so much uh, to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And Craig, uh, I guess that about brings us to the end of another show. This is Bob Ambrogi. As always, thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.